We come as your children. We come to you as our Father. We know that you know everything that we need. You know that you know everything we think before we even think the thought. You know our thoughts and their origins. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us in this time things pertaining to our lives. Give specific answers, we ask, we pray, to dilemmas that we face, questions that we pose in our hearts, and further instruction, encouragement, and admonition where needed. We submit ourselves to you, Lord. We are anxious to see what you're going to unfold for us this week, and we ask that you might prepare us for this week as well as preparing the week for us. Use this time that we might be better equipped to be your representatives to this world. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In verse 14, and he was casting out a demon, and it was mute. So it was when the demon had gone out that the mute spoke and the multitudes marveled. Some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. And others testing him sought from him a sign from heaven. When a person does not understand something, they have to give an explanation for it. They can come up with all sorts of ideas as to how something happened. How did it occur? What explanation can we give? Jesus is casting out demons. It's very obvious. But we don't recognize him as the Son of God, so we must then relegate his activities to the realm of the devil himself because we see him as wicked. If you were to take a television to a place where they had never seen technology. If you could somehow get it, wire it, and let it play, maybe getting a satellite signal, and you were in the deep heart of the jungle somewhere in the South Pacific or in Indonesia or in uh, parts of Africa where they had never seen technology, and you were to show them those little people running around that box, what those people might think what they might say, you know, look at that. How'd they shrink? How'd they get so small? How'd they fit in there? You are a witch doctor. You're evil. I traveled with Franklin Graham a couple years ago, and he gives to some of his people in parts of the world, like in Mogadishu, Somalia, or in the southern Sudan, this satellite-operated and solar-powered fax machine. It can operate anywhere on earth. Get us the uh, little plate that has the solar panel and it'll be powered by the sun and then you can link into a satellite dish. You can send or receive a fax, make a call from anywhere on earth. And to watch people watch us to set that thing up, it's like, you know, who are these people? What planet do they come from? Beam me aboard, Scotty. And so Jesus, with these miracles, trying to figure out exactly what is happening, 
um, I heard of a missionary who had gone to one of these remote areas, had led a couple of the indigenous peoples to Christ, and brought them to America. They had never seen a city in America before. They had never seen a modern hotel. They had never seen automobiles like we have here. They were dazzled. As they walked into the lobby of a hotel, they noticed this strange box. We know it as an elevator. But imagine seeing an elevator for the first time. And these two fellows from this island, wherever they were from, they looked at this thing and they saw these doors open sideways, you know. They watched two older gals walk in, door close, and the thing just disappeared. They didn't know what happened. They just stood there. Several minutes later, two gorgeous young women walked out. And you can imagine what they were thinking. One said to his friend, oh man, we've got to bring our wives here to ride in that machine. It was a miracle box. Where did the power come from? How did that happen? Jesus Christ, working miracles by delivering people from the hold of Satan. It is now being relegated to the sphere of Satan himself, and they say it's by Bills above, the prince of demons. Back in 2 Kings, the story opens up with a guy by the name of King Ahaziah. Ahaziah was the king of Israel. He's the son of Ahab, uh, Mr. El Wicked of Israel. And Ahab dies. Ahaziah takes over. And Ahaziah, we don't know exactly what happened, but the text says he fell through the lattice of his window from the upper room and he was injured. So he must have fallen out on the street and he was severely injured. And he sent a messenger he said, go to Ekron, which is down in southern Philistia, and inquire of Baal-zebub and see if I will live or not. Baal-zebub was a pagan Philistine god. His name means Lord of the Flies, sometimes called Baal-zebul, Lord of the Dwelling. Go inquire of Baal-zebub, see if I'm going to live or not. So the guy goes down toward Ekron to the temple of Baal-zebub and... Uh, the Spirit of the Lord speaks to Elijah, the prophet, to go meet the character. He meets the messenger and Elijah says, What? There's no God in Israel that you have to inquire of this pagan god, Beelzebub, to find out if your king's going to live or not? Because of this, thus says the Lord, Ahaziah will die. He won't even make it out of his bed. He's just going to kick the bucket right there and not even be able to get out of his bed. Go tell him that. The messenger goes back, tells the king, uh, I was on the way to Beelzebub's house and uh, this guy met me and told me you're going to die. He said, what did he look like? He said, well, he was a hairy man. He had a weird coat on and he was really hairy. He goes, it's Elijah. It's Elijah the prophet. Send 50 men to go kill him. So a commander of 50 men, hey, wait a minute, I'm teaching Luke. Anyway, a commander of 50 men and his men go down to where Elijah's at and says, 
you know, come down here, you man of God. And Elijah says, if I'm really a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and kill all of you. Fire came down from heaven and consumed them. King sent another 50 men. He said, go do the same. Commander went down. And the commander said, come down here, man of God. Elijah said, if I am a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume you. And it did. A third group was dispatched by Ahaziah. This time, this guy had enough sense to say, mercy, mercy, please, look, post toasty already. These guys are dead. Have mercy on me. And so God spoke to Elijah and he said, this guy's harmless. Go down. He's scared out of his wits. And then Elijah explained to him, because you have sought Beelzebub instead of the Lord God of Israel, this is the decree. Ahaziah is not going to even get up from his bed. He's going to die. And the word of the Lord was fulfilled and he died. That's the first 17 verses of 2 Kings. The Jews took the name, this Ekron Philistine God, and would call Satan Beelzebub, the Lord of the fry, flies. It just sort of, not fries, it's... <laughs> the Lord of the fries is down here at the fast food restaurants. But the Lord of the flies, that's what Beelzebub means, and that name was always given to Satan by many of the very religious Jews. So some of them said he casts out demons by, by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Others testing him sought from him a sign from heaven, but he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Because you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebub. In other words, that's illogical. Why would Satan fight himself? Why would Satan, if I were casting out by his power, use me to divide his kingdom? Any nation who's been involved in a civil war knows that a civil war means the dismantling of the strength of any nation. It's fighting itself. It's cancerous to that nation. So Jesus is saying, that's ridiculous. That's illogical. But he recognizes that they are admitting that he has some kind of power. And they're just trying to figure out a reason for it. And if I cast out demons by the Lord of the flies, Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Satan is the strong man. Jesus is the stronger man. Never forget that. You don't have anything to worry about, Christian. Oh, but Satan is so strong, you say. Yes, he is. But the one who is stronger lives within you. Satan does not. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Who lives in you? Jesus, the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I will come and dwell in you. My Father will come. And the Bible says your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. 
Satan is strong. He can oppress human beings. And he can possess and demonize and control unbelievers. He can oppress Christians. In fact, you're his greatest target. If he cannot keep you from coming to Christ, which is his first tactic, once you come to Christ, he'll try to oppress you. He'll try to have you look inwardly and say, oh man, I've got so many problems. Oh, I can't really do anything for God. Oh, I can never serve God till I get everything straightened out. And he'll try to either incapacitate you through false doctrine or a number of ways, but the devil can never possess your body. There's a vast difference. I think it is nigh unto blasphemy to say a Christian can be demon-possessed. Now granted, a Christian can yield territory over to the devil. There can be a stronghold due to habits, lifestyles that have occurred. Habits that have sort of become entrenched within a life. And it's hard to break them and it takes some serious spiritual warfare. And I think in some cases over a period of time. It's different from being demonized. In the scripture, a demon, you never find, by the way, of Jesus ever casting a demon out of a Christian over after one of his followers or the disciples or Paul casting a devil out of a Christian ever once in all of the scripture. Why? Because your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, make that distinction in your mind. I've read some books that say, well, now, a, a demon can invade the body of a Christian, but not the spirit of a Christian. Well, the Bible says your body and your spirit belong to God. The reason I say it's nigh unto blasphemy to say that a Christian can be demon-possessed is, wait a minute, would God share his apartment with Satan? If he's bought you with the blood of his son so that he can come into your heart and into your life and live inside of your body as the temple of the Holy Spirit. Is he going to allow Satan? Hey, come on in. There's room for you. I'll share it with you. Greater is he that is in you. Who's in you? The devil? No. God. That's inherent within the text and its context. Than he that is in the world. And you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. There's a vast difference between Satan taking over the motor functions of a person's brain, thus the body, and being oppressed by the devil. The strong man is the devil. The stronger man is Jesus who takes the spoil away from the devil. When did he do that? According to Paul in Colossians 2, at the cross. At the cross. Nailing that handwriting of ordinances that was against you and taking away the power of principalities and demonic powers against you. Now in verse 23, he shows that it's impossible to be neutral in this spiritual battle. Some were saying, you're of the devil. Others were saying he's of God. Maybe others in the crowd were saying, you know, I just think he's a nice guy, but I won't say one thing or the other. But he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. How many have you met who have said, I'm not against Jesus. I'm just not for him. I'm undecided. Well, then you've made a decision to be not for him. So to be undecided, says Jesus, is to be decided. There's no neutrality. 
Now, he amplifies this idea of no neutrality by the next story. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, and I have to infer this is not a parable, because Jesus, when he gives a parable, says he gives a metaphoric kind of a nuance. He will say, the kingdom of God is like. Or he will say, hear a parable. This is a story, and I have to infer it's from real life. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest. And finding none, he says, I will return to my house from which I came. When he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. And then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits, more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. It seems that demons are restless and they seek to inhabit a body. They want to express their wicked personality through some being. When Jesus was casting the demons out of the man of Gadara, they begged him to cast them into this herd of pigs. They had to be embodied. They wanted to destroy something else. To express their wickedness, their evil personality. Through either a person, or in this case, an animal. Now, when the spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. He says, I will return to my house from which I came. The body was the demon's house. He dwelt inside of this person. Through whatever means... The demon has left now. Now, this is a vast improvement, is it not? To be uninhabited of demons is a lot better than being inhabited with demons. That's a given. His condition has improved. However, if that person remains neutral and doesn't fill his body, his house, with a stronger man than the strong man and his demons that have left, he could be in worse condition. He goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Reformation is never enough. Reformation without a complete transformation is dangerous. For a person to say, I'm going to empty my life of bad habits and vices. I'm going to quit cussing. I'm going to quit drinking. I'm going to quit smoking. I'm going to quit. That's not enough. You must fill it with Jesus Christ. The soul can never be empty. In Ephesians, it says, Be not drunk with wine, in which is dissipation. But does it stop there? says, but be what? Filled with the Spirit. Don't just remove something evil. Fill your life with something good. In this case, the Holy Spirit of God to control you. Fill yourself. Once it's been emptied, fill it with something right. I think there's no better example of this in the Christian life than in the thought life. Now, if you're to come to me and I say, and you say, man, I'm having horrible thoughts, wicked thoughts, nasty thoughts. What should I do? If I were to say, don't think those thoughts, 
If you go around saying, I'm not going to think those thoughts, I'll guarantee you, you're going to think them all the more. Because you're fixated upon them now. In a negative way. It's not enough. But if I give you what the scripture says in Philippians, if there's anything good, noble, of good rapport, lovely, think on these things. Fill your mind with new thoughts. Fill your life with new activities. Then you are replacing the wicked with the good. Now when a person is delivered from Satan's domain and he has had the demon exorcised, and by the way, I believe in demon possession. I've never seen a Christian demon possessed because it is un, it's impossible. But I have seen unbelievers demon possessed. I've also been involved, though not because I was looking for it, because I wasn't. I've been involved in the casting out of people who've truly been demon possessed. And with every case, we are careful to stay with that person, admonishing him until that person receives Jesus Christ into his heart. Because we warn him, listen, Satan doesn't give up. He's going to be back. He's going to come looking for you. You need to fill the house with Jesus Christ. And then when the devil comes knocking at the door, since Jesus lives there, tell Jesus to answer the door. You don't have to stand at the door and say, I rebuke you, Satan. I come again. Just don't even talk to him. Pray to Jesus. Pray to God. Ask God to open the door, answer the door. God, take care of him, would you? Tell him I'm busy. I'm busy with you. I'm busy loving you, praying to you, worshiping you. The soul can never be empty. It must be inhabited with good or evil. And it happened as he spoke these things that a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts which nursed you. Sounds like the group that I grew up with. Somebody recognizing, wow, this is the Son of God. This is the Messiah. His mother must be so blessed. How blessed to be the mother of Jesus Christ. Jesus' answer is revealing. More than that, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. You know what he's saying? You, as an obedient Christian, are more blessed than Mary. Blessed more than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Now, I have nothing against Mary. She is the most blessed woman because of her status and her position probably that has ever lived. What an honor. Yet she, himself was, she herself was not sinless. She says, uh, blessed is God my Savior. Only sinners use such language as the need of having a Savior. She was blessed. A miracle happened in her body. And the first part of the Hail Mary is scriptural. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. That is straight out of the Gospels. The second part is stretching it like this woman. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Where does this come from? 
It comes from the thinking, just like this woman had when she saw Jesus and uttered this, this, oh, blessed is this woman. The idea is this. There is a hierarchy. God is important. He's the most important. Jesus Christ is busy. And if you want to get something done, uh, well, you know what it's like. If your mother comes to you and says something to you, you know, you might be a little more apt to listen to your mother. So rather than you coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I trust you. I come to you directly, to the throne of God directly as I am because you've given me that promise. Well, that's okay, but you know, if you could get Mary to go for you. And if Mary were to talk to Jesus on your behalf, Jesus would be more apt to listen. But that's not true. That's not true. The Bible says, because we have a high priest, Jesus Christ the righteous, therefore, we should come boldly, not timidly, not timorously. Come boldly before the throne of God that we might obtain mercy and grace to help in time of need. That's a promise to you. This woman had good intentions. Being Jewish, she understood that. Jews place a high priority on physical relationship. Jews prided themselves in being the sons, the children of Abraham, according to the flesh. But Jesus said, hey, listen, more than that, okay, she's blessed. More than that, those people who hear and obey, they're blessed. Then there was the time when the mom and the brothers and sisters of Jesus came and Jesus was teaching, and they said, hey, your mom and your brothers are out there. They want to see you. Jesus said, well, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And he pointed to them, and he said, those who hear the word of God and do it. Are my mothers, my brothers, my sisters. Spiritual relationship. Spiritual family. And while the crowds were thickly gathered together, he began to say, this is an evil generation. What do you think Jesus would say if he was in this generation? (laughs) Do you think he'd say, well, you've greatly improved. I love your computers. And I love the advances that you've made and the age of enlightenment and the renaissance. You've really improved yourself. You've gotten so smart. Jesus said, this is an evil generation. It seeks a sign And no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah, the prophet. For as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. Now twice in this text is mentioned a sign. A few verses back, it says they wanted some sensational sign. They wanted him to perform some magic. They wanted to be ooed and awed. Some years later, about 45 A.D., there was a guy who claimed to be the Messiah, like Jesus. And he uh, led a group of people down from Jerusalem to the Jordan River. And they said, we want a sign. And so he capitulated to their whims. He said, I'll give you a sign. I will part the Jordan River. And you will follow me from Israel across into Edom. And I will save you. And he stood there and waved his hand and it didn't work. 
And the Romans caught up with them and killed them. They said, we want a sign. And Jesus said, this is a wicked generation. It seeks a sign. You won't get a sign, except you will get one sign. And he's speaking about his resurrection now. The sign of Jonah, the prophet. Now, please notice this. Jesus does not say, Jonah isn't literally a prophet. The story didn't really happen. I prefer to see the Bible as mere literature. You can't take it literally. You don't expect me, Jesus, the Messiah, to believe Jonah was a literal person who got swallowed by a literal fish and got vomited up literally upon land and spoke to literal Ninevites and they really turned and repented. Jesus called Jonah a prophet. He recognizes the historicity of this man. Yet, there are seminary professors who I would really call cemetery professors who really believe they know more than Jesus. Well, that's the belief of the time. We know more now. I've even heard seminary professors say, yes, because I live in the 20th century, I do know more than Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't know what to say to a professor like that. I, I don't know what to say to anyone who knows more than Jesus. How do you handle a person who knows more than Jesus Christ? Wow. <laughs> Jesus called Jonah a prophet, and he used him as a sign of his resurrection. For as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. How is Jonah a sign? He himself was a sign. Well, he says, the Bible says he was in the belly of this great fish three days. He came out. Science tells us that for a person to be in the stomach of a creature like this for this long, he probably was bleached almost completely white or yellow, would have lost all of his hair. And to look at this guy must have, you know, he looked like death warmed over. He survived. And here's this yellow, bald-headed, seaweed-endorsed prophet saying, repent. And he knew from fighting with God what happens if you don't. He himself was the sign. Jonah was sent from a far country, and they believed. Jesus was sent all the way from heaven to earth. And yet this generation that was seeking a sign did not believe. Nineveh repented. The people of Jesus' generation did not repent. Um, by the way, it's an aside, but I'll, I'll recommend this to you. Every now and then somebody will say, wait a minute, there, there's, there's nothing in history that, that would show us that Jonah actually got swallowed by a real whale. In the commentary by James Montgomery Boyce on the book of Jonah, he says that if you were to call Encyclopedia Britannica, they have a service that if you are researching something that they have not written about and you have a paid subscription to Britannica, you can get certain information. And he did that. And he published what he found out about uh, case histories of great fish, uh, one being the sperm well. The sperm whale is absolutely huge. It's, they found 15 to 20 foot sharks 
alive in the belly of a sperm whale that survived. The Catadon megacephalus, it's called. Huge creature. Then there's the um, whale shark. And they have found human beings inside whale sharks, some of which were still alive that survived being a couple of days in the deep. So anyway, if you want to research that, have a lot of fun. The queen of the south, that is the queen of Sheba, will rise up in judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. This is a Gentile woman who came a long way to hear about Solomon and his God, and she was so impressed that she received what he said. The men of Nineveh will rise up in this in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. Now the Bible talks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ as being predicted in the Old Testament. And every now and then an astute student of Scripture will say, where is it predicted that Jesus would rise from the dead? It says that it's predicted, but where is it predicted exactly? Are there any shadows? Are there any types? Are there any direct predictions? Well, there's a few. One is Jonah. Jonah apparently rose from the grave. He wasn't really dead, but he came out of this great fish's belly after surviving a few days and nights. Second is David, who in the Psalms, and he's quoted, Stephen quotes him uh, in the book of Acts, David said, you will not leave his soul in hell, nor allow your Holy One to see corruption, fleshly corruption after death. Stephen says, David spoke this speaking of the Messiah. It was a prediction from the Old Testament. David wasn't speaking of himself, obviously, because he's dead. And here's the sepulcher. It's still with us to this day. Obviously, he was speaking of the seed of his body who would come, Jesus the Messiah. That's number two. There's the third illustration. I think, in the scripture that's very dramatic. And that's Abraham. God said, Abraham, take now your son, your only son whom you love, and go to the place that I will tell you, to Mount Moriah, and offer him as a sacrifice upon Mount Moriah. So he goes up there. You know the story. takes out the knife, ready to kill him. The angel says, "Ah, cool it. Get a ram out of the bush. You've obeyed me. And your son will live. You've obeyed. You haven't withheld your son, your only son, whom you love. Abraham called this place Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord will provide because the scripture says, and it's a prediction, in the mountain of the Lord it shall be seen. Now there's some striking parallels between what happened with Abraham and Isaac and what happened with Jesus. Here's a few. See if you can't see the fingerprints of the Holy Spirit on this one. The very first time in the Bible the word love is used, it is used in Genesis 22. Take now your son, your only son whom you love. It's the first time the word love is used in the Bible, and it is used of a father's love for his son as he would sacrifice his son. Secondly, Isaac is called his only son. Now, wait a minute. He had another son. Who was he? Ishmael. That was his firstborn son. 
But God calls Isaac the son of promise, his only son. Take now your only son. Jesus is called the only begotten, monogene, only begotten one of God, his only son, whom you love. Take him to Moriah and kill him. It says in the scripture, after three days journey, after three days journey, he took out the knife to kill his son and the angel stopped him. What that means is, in Abraham's mind, his son was dead three days. Three days ago, God said, kill him. So he thought, he's as good as dead. I don't know how God's going to do anything. He's supposed to be the son of promise. Now I've got to kill him. He's dead. He's as good as dead. For three days in the mind of Abraham, his son was dead. On the third day, the angel restrained him. There's also a fourth. He was taken to Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah is the place that later on the temple was built by Solomon, started by David. And on that mountaintop, lambs were offered for the sins of the people. But outside the city, Mount Moriah, outside the temple mount, it goes up. And if we take you to Jerusalem, we'll show you the cross section. You can see the Temple Mount if you're standing on the Mount of Olives. You look across the Kidron Valley. You see that huge area, that acreage of the Temple Mount. And as you follow it off to the horizon, you see it rise up. And at the top of Mount Moriah is a place the New Testament calls Golgotha. The same mountain, it's at the peak of the mountain, Probably the place where Abraham offered his son, almost offered his son. Hence the prophecy, in the mountain of the Lord, it shall be seen. It shall be seen. A prediction of the death and the resurrection of his son. Fascinating. So anyway, this came up because of Jonah. He's the sign that Jesus uses here of the resurrection and the judgment. No one, when he has lit a lamp, puts it in a secret place or under a basket, but on a lampstand, that those who come in may see the light. The lamp of the body is the eye. Therefore, when your eye is good, your whole body is also full of light. When your eye is bad, your body is also full of darkness. You have to adjust to the light in a room before you can function. You live according to the light that you have. Therefore, take heed that the light which is in you is not darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, the whole body will be full of light, as when the bright shining of a lamp gives you light. As he spoke, a certain Pharisee came to dine with him. So he went in and sat down to eat. When the Pharisee saw it, he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. Now, my mom used to bother her when I would come in and I wouldn't wash before supper. But the Pharisee is not so concerned about hygiene as he is ceremony. He invites Jesus over for dinner. Jesus comes. And he doesn't go through the ceremonial cleansings. There were elaborate washings. They're not in the Bible. They were invented. They were made up by teachers, rabbis. And, man, they had in the Talmud page after page of stipulations. You had to have, what was it, half or a quarter of a log of water to wash. What that meant is at least one and a half eggshells worth of water to wash your hands before supper. There was a special stone jar kept 
in the house or outside on the porch, especially for the ceremonial cleansing because the other water could be contaminated. This is special kind of holy water for this occasion. What they would do is first put the palms up and the hands slightly bent. And this is all written about in the Jewish Talmud. And you would have the water uh, poured from the tips of the fingers down the palms, back of the hand, and it was to drain at the wrist on both hands. After that, you were to reverse the process with the fingers pointed down, and you begin pouring from the wrists to the back of the hands, and it drips off the fingers. You had to do that before a meal to be cleansed ceremonially. Some strict Pharisees said not only every meal, but between each course. Can you imagine how long dinner would take? Some of the superstitious leaders said you could contract a demon if you didn't wash between each course. And they invented the name Shibta, the demon that attaches itself to food. And when you eat food because you haven't washed with clean hands, you could get demon-possessed. Those guys would fare in some churches today very well. Jesus comes in, doesn't wash. And this really bothers the Pharisee. He comes in to eat. He's not breaking any Old Testament law. He came to fulfill the law and the prophets. But he didn't meet up to their little tradition that they had made up. But the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees make the outside of the cup and the dish clean, but your inward part is full of greed and wickedness. Foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? You get his message? Man, if you would emphasize cleaning your heart as much as you emphasize cleaning your hands, how much better you'd be off. You know, a person's tradition is so hard to break. You've been raised, some of you, with strict religious backgrounds and traditions. And when it comes to those traditions, for you to not do them, oh, it's so difficult. Even if you can't find it in the scripture, even if the scripture speaks against it, we've all, I've always done it that way. It's comfortable. It's, it's, it's almost like it's the last stronghold that goes. I remember personally some of my own traditions. And how difficult it was to break them. And I felt like, man, I'm committing blasphemy. And I, I should be doing this thing. Jesus emphasized the inward, not the outward. Uh, by the way, shouldn't we... Shouldn't our character be more important than our reputation? We are worried about reputation, are we not? We're worried about how people view us, how people see us. Do they see us as being a certain way spiritual? And so we sometimes will even act a certain way around them. After all, we want them to think well of us. But character is different. Reputation is what people perceive you to be. Character is what you really are underneath it all. If you took a batch of apples, a bushel of apples, reputation, that's the apples on top. Character is the ones underneath the surface. It's what you are when nobody's looking. And that is always of prime importance to God. We find that in the Bible. 
But rather, he said, give alms of such things as you have. Then indeed, all things are clean to you. But woe to you Pharisees. Woe is not a good term. Now, a modern teenager today would go, whoa, dude. And that's a good term. But in the Bible, whoa is not a good term. It's a bad term. It's a term that is denunciatory. Woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs and pass by justice and the love of God. These things you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Oh, they were so meticulous in their tithe. Should we tithe net or gross? Now, the law never said they had to tithe the herbs. They didn't now. They had to tithe the things that grew. But rue, which was a very woodsy kind of an herb, very uh, strong scent, was exempt. They didn't have to do it. But some of these guys, they were so meticulous that they would tithe these little herbs. A tenth goes here, a tenth goes there. Now, the way you would tithe in those days, you tithe to the Levites directly. The Levites would then take a tenth of that and tithe it to the priests so that they were all taken care of. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and the greetings in the marketplaces. The best seats in the synagogues were right up front facing the congregation. The chief rabbis would sit there during the meeting. Uh, as the scrolls were being read, as the music went on, they would have their arms folded, their robes about them. Then in the congregation, there were even the best seats and the least seats. The best seats were up front. The more spiritual you were in the synagogues, you would sit up front. And, you know, you kind of go back as you go. These guys loved the best seats because they loved visibility. They loved their reputation. And they loved greetings in the marketplaces. It says in Matthew, they loved to be called rabbi, teacher, doctor, reverend. Oh, Yes, more. <laughs> Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. Now, by the way, the term hypocrites was a Greek term which meant an actor who in the Greek plays would wear an actual mask tied to a little stem and he would hold it up to his face and he would play a part. And the term hypocrite meant an actor. It was not a bad term, but it, can't, it, it went on, it, it uh, became a bad term. As somebody who lived a life by wearing a mask, pretending to be something he's really not. There's a reputation, but the character is different. Now, I think we all go through life putting on masks. But if you're a Christian, those masks should go. You should just be known for who you are. Be who you are. Let God accept you for who you are. Let others accept you for who you are. We grow up, I remember in high school, all the masks we wore. There was the, I'm cool mask. And you know, you walk a certain way. You got the attitude. You got the sleeve rolled up a certain way. You got the look on your face, you know. A very arrogant, hey dude. What's up, man? Or there was the kind of a, unintellectual kind of a look, you know, I'm kind of aloof and above everybody else. I know more than you do. Oh, how silly. When you come to Jesus Christ, realize that God sees you, every part of you. And what's more amazing is he loves you. And he loves me. Though he knows everything about me, he loves me. 
and he wants me. And so how foolish for me to come to him and continue to wear a mask. There's nothing more liberating than to be accepted by the body of Christ for who you are, not for who you ought to be. It allows you to be everything God wants you to be. Hypocrites, you with the religious masks. For you are like, ooh, listen to that. You are like graves, which are not seen, and men who walk over them are not aware of them. In Numbers 19, the scripture says, Whosoever is in the field and toucheth the grave shall be unclean for seven days. Now, a person might be walking out in the fields and not know that he just walked over a grave. It could be purely incidental. And he leaves it, and somebody said, You know, I noticed a couple blocks back you stepped on a grave. Well, I didn't know it. Sorry, you're still unclean. The implication, Jesus is saying, is very stout. He's saying, you guys, when you come into contact with people, they may not be aware of it, but whoever you touch, you influence for evil. You are like graves that defile people by your very influence. They knew what he was saying. Now, they knew what he was saying. Listen to this. One of the lawyers answered, And said to him, Teacher, by saying these things, you reproach us also. Hey, listen, these are are not good things. And uh, we're scribes. We're experts in the law. We translate the scriptures. And, you know, you're kind of cutting these guys down here. And we're kind of like part of them. And, you know, it makes us look bad. And so Jesus doesn't want any misunderstanding. And he says, Woe unto you also, lawyers. For you load men with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. You know what he was talking about? The scribes were the guys that wrote the thousands of traditional regulations that a person had to keep. This is what Jesus meant when he said, you burden people with things nobody can keep. Remember Peter in the book of Acts to the council of Jerusalem? He said, why should we lay upon the Gentiles a burden that neither we nor our fathers were ever able to bear? He was honest. He said, I never kept the whole law, neither did any of you, so why are we trying to tell Gentiles who aren't even part of the covenant to do what we can't do? The scribes wrote thousands of laws, yet they were masters at evasion. Here's an example. The law of God said, you have to stay at home during the Sabbath. No work, no traveling, right? A Sabbath day's journey was a little over 1,000 feet, 2,000 cubits, oh, 1,300 feet, somewhere around there, depending how you measure the cubit, whether it's a 16 or 18-inch cubit. Anyway, these guys stated the law, but they evaded keeping it. How? Well, they said, if you stretch a cord at the end of your street, across the street, you have extended your dwelling, and you can go 1,000 feet from that. Now, if you think this is haywire, I've shared with you an article. I have it in my study. In Jerusalem today, there's a cord, a cable, underground cable. Sometimes it surfaces that they have put around the parameters of Jerusalem. So you can go anywhere on the Sabbath day, anywhere you want, because you're within your dwelling. You have fenced it off. It came from the scribal law. Or if you brought food... And with the food, you could make two meals on a day, and you place that food strategically apart from your house. You could go a thousand feet from the place you dropped off that food. 
So they were breaking the Sabbath law all over the place, telling people, keep the law, keep the law, keep the law. And they were evading it. All of these regulations. And, hey, serving God, man, it was really a drag in those days. You know, who could memorize all these things? Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. In fact, you bear witness that you approve the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore the wisdom of God also said, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill and persecute. That the blood of all the prophets, which was shed from the foundation of the world, may be required of this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the temple. Yes, I say to you, it shall be required of this generation." Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves, and those who were entering in, you hindered. The tombs of the prophets, how paradoxical they treated the prophets. It was their fathers who killed them, persecuted them. Now they venerate them. Have you noticed that after people die, you know, we want to quote them and, oh, they were so good. But a lot of times, while they're alive, we don't want anything to do with them. You know, if you've ever read A.W. Tozer, one of the giants of church history in our generation, you know, just a few years back he died. When A.W. Tozer lived, nobody wanted him at, at their church. He was too controversial. He was a fiery preacher. Now everybody quotes him. The fathers killed the prophets. And they're, oh, the, the prophets, the prophets, the prophets. Jesus is saying, wait a minute. Your fathers killed the prophets. You want to kill a living prophet, yet you venerate a dead one. Outside of Jerusalem in the Kidron Valley, there's a series of tombs called the Tombs of the Prophets. Some of them are 2,000 years old, and Jesus may have been referring to those tombs in the Kidron Valley. Again, if you go, we'll show you the Tombs of the Prophets. We don't know exactly who's there, but there is the tomb of Zechariah. It is called that. It's tradition that the prophet was buried there. And it could be that Jesus would be there pointing over to that tomb in the Kidron Valley that they had decorated. And still, it's a beautiful, beautiful piece of architecture. As he said these things to them, the scribes and the Pharisees began to assail him vehemently. Or you might say they were exceedingly bummed out. And they shouted at him. And, and to cross-examine him about many things. Lying in wait for him and seeking to catch him in something that he might say that they might accuse him. Now chapters 12 through 19 is a long section. In fact, it's the longest in all of the scripture. And let me sum it all up for you. Chapter 12 through 19 is the teachings of Jesus Christ to the disciples based upon the persecution of the leadership. So it's instruction based upon rejection. The nation has rejected him. He came to his own. They received him not. The Pharisees are against him. The scribes are against him. The temple, the synagogue is against him. And so he teaches the 12 disciples some very, very important lessons. And um, that's basically the crux of chapters 12 through 19. I... I'm ready to go through chapter 12, but we're out of time. My, how time flies when you're having a great time. Hmm. 
Lord, I pray that we would be those who study the scriptures, but more than anything else, we would love the author of the scriptures, and they would always lead us to that personal encounter with the author. We do not come to worship a book. We come to worship the author thereof. And I pray, Lord, that everyone here tonight would know the author, that we would keep the spirit, not just the letter of the law. Save us, Father, from being like a scribe or a Pharisee. Help us, Lord, to divide where necessary, but to embrace whenever possible. Lord, I pray that the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, would be made priorities in our lives. Oh, Lord, we thank you for the stories and the example of Jesus Christ, how he was so able to handle the false religious leaders, yet to do it in such a a loving way, at least for the sake of the crowd and the disciples, how he was able to diffuse Somebody who wanted to give all the attention to Mary, his mother. He didn't castigate her. He simply said, well, even more than that, blessed are those who hear and obey. Lord, I pray that we would follow suit, being truthful, standing up for what is right, but speaking the truth always with a heart of love, that we might reflect a God of love, like 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 a God of love. Like the 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 God of